How did Peter, James, and John recognize Moses and Elijah at the Transfiguration? If your spouse has been excommunicated, what does that mean for you? And did Jesus free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt according to Jude 5? The answer is when we understand the text. And it'll sound great. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. Merry Christmas from your friends at When We Understand the Text, a daily Bible commentary to help encourage your time in the Word, that we may grow together in Christ. Tell all your friends about our ministry at www.utt.com. Here once again is Pastor Gabe. Thank you, Becky. You're welcome. Merry Christmas to you too. Yeah. We're getting close here. Getting I, j- I made a comment on social media <laughs> recently that, uh, that Christmas is not pagan. Right. And so there was an explosion of responses. Oh, I'm sure. I'm going to hold on to those replies. We'll fit that into our Christmas episode next week. How about that? Sounds good. So for today, we're going to start with Psalm 6. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible for the choir director with stringed instruments, but I'm not going to play anything right here while we do this. (laughs) Well, we do have a box of heart. Like a lap harp? Yeah, the lap harp right there. I forgot that was in here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do I have a guitar in here? No, that's out there. No, that's out there. Yep, but I'm not not doing it. Oh, wait, no. They're in the closet. Oh, the guitars are in there. Yeah. Okay, we just moved them. Yeah, I moved them. Uh, According (laughs) So they survived Bubba. (laughs) He couldn't get those open, could he? Those cases? Not the cases. The ones that are open, though. He was trying to step on them. Oh, like like Aria's guitar. Yeah. Which we don't have a case for. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. According to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David, O Yahweh, do not reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Yahweh, how long? Return, O Yahweh, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no remembrance of you in death. In Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my supplication. Yahweh receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. Now, let me ask you, as I was reading that, what word did you hear the most? Yahweh. Yahweh. So he's continually calling upon Yahweh Mm -hmm. in his grief and his distress and even in his repentance saying, don't reprove me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are dismayed. Mm -hmm. So saying over and over again, the name of the Lord, sometimes we uh, will criticize somebody in their prayer, how often they'll say Lord or O Father, O Father. You can see David do it in the Psalms. That's true. Yeah. I think there does. a different way of praying. You know, like everybody has their own way. Exactly. Yeah. And what you're comfortable with. And and yeah, I think we do need to be mindful of, you know, not just to fill our prayers with filler words. Right. We, we need to be conscious of our prayers and what we're saying. But don't automatically criticize. Why are they saying God's name so much in the prayer? Mm-hmm. Praise God. Right. 
you know, David calling upon Yahweh as often as he does here. And one of the other things I love about the kind of the we're able to look inside David's heart in this psalm. When you read about David, who's this great warrior king, and you have all the enemies who come against them the way that they do, the, the, the enemies that come against David the way that they do. Mm-hmm. You're talking about his father-in-law, Saul. Yep. His own son, I was Absalom. Say his, his son, yeah. Yeah. These people that he people loves. Are close to him. Exactly. Yeah. And these are the people that want to kill him. And so what was his heart like in the midst of all of that? He's certainly not just, you know, a stoic, oh, more haters. Yeah. You know, and he just, you know, does what he has to do as a king. In his heart, he's ripped up. Yeah. Crying so much that I don't even have eyes anymore. I've cried so much. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the statement that he makes there. My eye is wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. You think of crying so much, you don't even have eyes to cry anymore. And so we're able to see the the mourning and the struggle and the heartbreak that he had. And yet not completely blaming all those other people. I'm such a victim and those people oppress me because the, the psalm begins with forgive me. Right. That's true. And don't reprove me in your anger. Mentality. Yeah, right. Yeah, this is not a selfish or self-centered prayer Mm-mm. in any way. And then warning the enemies, hey, God's heard my prayer. Yeah. So you better watch out. <laughs> yeah. God does answer prayers. That's right. <laughs> so when we experience that kind of heartbreak and we come before God and we and we weep before him, you're following the pattern of King David. Yeah. Who wept before God and pleaded for his mercy and asked for his deliverance. And that's where we should go with our heartbreak. Mm-hmm. It's it's not, you know, I need to deal with this before I come to God. God wouldn't want to see me in this condition. No, in First Peter or 5. I need to fix my own problems, you know. Right. I can do this. I can do this. I need to handle this myself. Yeah. First Peter 5 says, humble yourself and cast your anxieties on him mm. because he yeah. cares for you. It's it's proud to not take your cares before God. It is. But what a wonderful prayer from David. And I hope that it's encouraging to you and seeing how often Yahweh's name is called upon. Mm-hmm. That you would call upon the Lord in your distresses, whether it is the anxiety you feel because of unrepentant sin mm-hmm. or anxiety you might feel because of circumstances or people that come against you. You have all of that here in Psalm 6. I have a question. Okay. Kind of. Well, this is the episode to do of, it. Sort of random question. All right. I know, right? <laughs> um, so in, in the Psalms, uh, is it just one, like Psalm 6, right? Yes. That we just read. Is that just one prayer or is that different prayers at different times that he's collected together? I, it could be both. It could be that David wrote this in this moment of anguish and distress. And I would see that that's the most likely case. All at once. Or could it be that he's taking pieces of other prayers and putting them together in one thing? I mean, you know, it, like a daily log kind of thing. Like, here's yeah. my prayer today. Here's my prayer today. Did he have a prayer book? Yeah. Yeah. And write those things down. And surely he wrote even more than what we have in the Psalter. Sure. Yeah. So did he give those things to like, you know, the the um, uh, the sons of Korah? And say, here, make a song out of this yeah. or something to that effect. And then they take this piece and that piece and they put it together. I don't know. 
I was just curious. Yeah. Interesting theory. <laughs> yeah. But I would imagine most of the Psalms that we sing, that mm-hmm. we see that are from David, were all one song. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too, is that it, it sounds like it's all collective, like it's from one sitting. Yeah. Not just different sittings. And you think about where your mind goes whenever you pray, especially in distress. Like how many different things do you end up thinking about? Even if it's one thing that's driven you to this, a lot of times your mind goes to a lot of different places. Uh, yeah. It's kind of like, what, what's that called? Spaghetti? The, the woman's mind is like spaghetti, you know? No, no. I've never seen that. No. Oh, never mind. <laughs> All the ladies that are listening are going, yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah I know yeah, what you're yeah. talking about. I don't know what you're referring to. <laughs> like, like, it's not just one thought. It's like hundreds of thoughts, you know, like spaghetti goes everywhere. So it has all sorts <laughs> okay. of endings. And Right. Anyway. Well, anyway, all I'm saying is that in his distress, why you have different themes here of repentance, mm-hmm. of of asking that the Lord would deliver from my enemies, of then warning the enemies that God has heard my prayer. So you have different things, all of it interconnected. It's not random. Mm-hmm. It's not just, in, you know, random thoughts that come in, but it just, it also does speak to that tendency I know that I've had whenever I'm in distress and praying to God, that there's many different things that may come into my mind that I pray, even though it's one thing that's probably driven me to the Lord. Mm-hmm. There's other things that come into that. Is I wonder if this is connected to that and, mm-hmm. you know, different things like that. Yeah. Just share your heart before God. Yeah. Let him be your one perfect confidant. Yes. In all your distresses and anxieties. And he cares for us. All right. Being the Friday edition of When We Understand the Text, we take questions from the listeners. And you can send those questions to whenweunderstandthetext at gmail.com. I think I've got four questions or something like that here. One of them is really long. I saved it for the end. Okay. I figured we would uh, just kind of, you know, throw in some commentary as we're reading that particular email. Okay. <laughs> but again, you can send all those emails to when we understand the text at gmail.com. This one's from Sam. And he says, hey, Pastor Gabe, going back to the lessons over the transfiguration, which we did a couple of weeks ago, I heard a theory regarding the appearance of of Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the mountain. In the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah were the two prophets that the text says God passed before on a mountain. In Exodus 34, God put Moses in the cleft of a rock on Mount Sinai and passed before him. In 1 Kings 19.11, the Lord told Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. Now, here's Jesus standing before Peter, James, and John on a mountain, and he's transfigured before them with Moses and Elijah appearing with him. The theory goes that what Peter, James, and John saw was Jesus passing before Moses and Elijah, as if they were able to peer through time for where God dwells in his glory, space and time have no meaning. And here is Christ standing before them in unveiled glory. The theory might explain how Peter, James, and John were able to recognize Moses and Elijah. They recognized, according to the scriptures, what they were seeing. Hmm. Anyway, just curious to know your thoughts on that. Have you heard that theory, and is there any validity to it? Yes, I have heard the theory before. So do you get what he's saying? Yeah. Do you get what the theory is? Here's Jesus being transfigured before Peter, James, and John. In unveiled glory, he's appearing to them that they may see he is the son of God. He is the one who was sent from heaven. Mm-hmm. 
and they're able to see his glory manifested right there before before them. Moses and Elijah, it says, they stand there and are talking with Jesus. Let me go back to the passage as we read it in Matthew chapter 17. Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. So there's Elijah on one side, Moses on the other. They're talking with Jesus or, you know, however it would have looked. Mm -hmm. The three of them standing together, conversing. Sure. Peter answers. This is uh, Matthew 17, 4. He says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So Peter knows who these two men are. Mm-hmm. He knows they're Moses and Elijah. And as I joked, you know, they didn't have, didn't have Facebook back then. Right. There weren't, didn't have name tags. Yeah. Didn't have yearbooks of the prophets. Like, uh, oh, yeah, I remember Moses' picture from, <laughs> yearbooks of the prophets. from back in the day. <laughs> and yet they knew who they were. And Peter's even offering to build booths for them. Mm-hmm. So how did he recognize them? What and are, what are booths? Well, like like tents. Oh, okay. So it it's so possible like a place of worship or a place of staying. Well, okay. So it could have been like a tent of meeting, sort of a thing, uh-huh. or it could have been the most likely explanation being that Peter wanted to make booths like in the Feast of Booths, where the Hebrews would dwell in tents, remembering the time that they were sojourning in the wilderness. Oh, okay. So it could have been that this was around that time. It was around the time of the Feast of Booths, hence why Peter was suggesting, why don't I build booths? Okay. You have yours, and there's one for Moses and one for Elijah. And and, and Peter's just, you know, he's... He's, he's just Peter. He's an overachiever. To be yeah. Helpful. Yeah. Right. He's he's thinking, uh, hey, well, I'll build something for you guys. We yeah. all just hang out here. He's excitable. Right. <laughs> and thinking, you know, maybe I can prolong this moment too. Sure. We can all just yeah. be right here. So let me build build uh, let me build booths for you guys. But anyway, so how do how do Peter, James, and John recognize Elijah and Moses, and what's the significance of those two? Well, when we went through the transfiguration, when we went through Matthew 17, I mentioned that the significance is that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. Mm -hmm. So you have Jesus who claimed to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets back in Matthew 5 is now standing here with the embodiment of the one who represents the law and the one who represents the prophets. Mm -hmm. So hence his standing there and talking with them. Now, I've heard this theory before. It's kind of like a time warp. And I have even shared the theory, though, in private circles. I don't know that I've ever taught it, mm-hmm. nor have I, nor did I mention it on the podcast when we were going through Matthew 17. So what's the possibility that Jesus is standing there with Peter, James, and John. They're looking through time and seeing those moments when Jesus was also passing before Moses on a mountain and passing before Elijah on a mountain, because here he was with Peter, James, and John on a mountain. The one thing that throws a, a, a wrench into that theory is that according to Luke's account of the transfiguration, Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about what he's about to go and do mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. That's what Luke says that they're talking about. Yeah. So we and we don't see that in the Exodus account or the first Kings account of the Lord passing before Moses and Elijah, which I agree the Lord passing before Moses and Elijah would have been Christ. It would have been the son of God, right? The pre-incarnate son of God. So Moses and Elijah knew the son of God. Mm -hmm. And as they're standing there with Jesus before Peter, James, and John, 
They're talking about what Jesus is going to go and do. The Old Testament doesn't give us any indication that God talked with Moses on Mount Sinai about what Jesus was going to go do in Jerusalem. Right. And that certainly isn't the context of the Lord passing before Elijah either in 1 Kings chapter 19. Right. And that's what I was going to say is just, weren't they conversing with each other? So Yeah, they're talking with one another. And it's, it's not like, you know, when Moses saw that Moses saw these other people with him and didn't know who they were. Now, now say that again. I'm sorry. Okay. So like whenever, whenever Moses sees him, he doesn't see other people. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause we have Peter, James and John are looking into some sort of, you know, right. Window time, time window or whatever it is yeah. <laughs> to see the Lord passing before Moses. But Moses doesn't see Jesus standing on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. Right. Yeah. I, I get I get what you're saying there. And Elijah wasn't there. You know. And so, Elijah, yeah, where's Elijah? Uh, yeah, so it, it, yeah. It just didn't, it, it doesn't add up. So it's an interesting theory. It's one of those things that's fun to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what would that have been like in the Transfiguration? Because we've talked before about how, you know, time and space to God aren't like time and space to us. Right. I don't think time and space are going to have no relevance whatsoever. When we get to heaven, mm-hmm. because if we have glorified bodies, we're talking about when, you know, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise. Our souls will be reunited with our bodies. We'll mm-hmm. have a, a body that is transformed to be like his glorious body right. by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. That's in Philippians three. So so we will enter into an, an existence that's not like this one. But it's not going to be that time and space have no relevance whatsoever. Because we will have a body like he has a body. Mm-hmm. So there's still that's space, right? Yeah. <laughs> Your body is a space and it's occupying a space. Right. So it can't be that we're just like an ethereal spirit existing in, in some sort of uh, a spiritual blob that's surrounding God for all eternity. That's not the picture of what we will be like. We'll still have bodies. Mm-hmm. So it is mysterious what it will be like. It's hard to kind of fathom what that kind of existence is like, which is why so little is said about it. Mm-hmm. In our existence right now, in our finite existence, we can barely comprehend the infinite. Right. Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in the hearts of man, but they cannot fathom mm. what he has done from beginning to end. Right. So, yeah, we can. These things are mysterious to us, which is why we can have these kinds of theories about this kind of stuff. Yeah. But we still have to be careful not to go beyond the text. Right. How did Peter, James, and John know that that was Moses and Elijah? I have a theory about that. Okay. Here's okay. your theory. Here's my theory. So so after Jesus raises from the dead, mm-hmm. um, he was walking with whom who didn't recognize him? Well, it doesn't say the disciples' names, but he was with two disciples oh, two on disciples. the road right. to Emmaus. But they, yeah. didn't, they didn't recognize him. They didn't him recognize him. Until he lifted the veil. Yes. And so wouldn't that explain how... Like, if you don't recognize somebody, but if you do recognize somebody, you know, Mm -hmm. because obviously they didn't know beforehand. Right. right. He opened their eyes. Different. Yes. Yeah. So, so they would recognize and know who it is for Elijah and Moses. Yeah. That's a good theory. Okay. So he lifts the veil Mm -hmm. from Peter, James, and John that they would just know that's Moses and Elijah. Yeah. That's one possibility. I mean, Greater uh, miracles have happened. Oh, of course. <laughs> Another possibility is so. Jesus said, 
hey, I want you to meet my friends. Here's is Elijah true. and this is Moses. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And the other one being that the disciples are standing there or, or you know, how whatever their posture was, listening to Jesus and Elijah and Moses yeah. talking. Sure. And going, you know, Peter looking at James and John going, that's Moses and Elijah. <laughs> what? Yeah. And that also speaks to the fact that that even though we will be a disembodied soul with the Lord, if we die and go be with the Lord before his return, mm-hmm. we'll be a disembodied soul like Moses and Elijah were. Yeah. But still recognizable. Mm-hmm. They still had an appearance of men. Right. Not just some, you know, ethereal cloud or yeah. spirit of some kind. I think God understands since he made us. That we can only handle so much before feeling that we're totally insane. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna have and then a your lot, brain tricks yeah. you that that didn't really happen because it couldn't happen, you know? Right. So anyway, he just knows our our limitations. Moses' body was not found. God buried him. True. It says. Uh huh. And then Elijah was taken up into heaven. Yep. So that's two people who could totally have their bodies. <laughs> Well, I do think I do think Moses his was body died. Yes, okay. he died because it had to be the the penalty, the consequence oh, yeah, for his that's disobedience. True. I forgot about that. So he wasn't taken up like Elijah and Enoch. Right, that's true. But anyway, good question, Sam. As you yeah. can tell, it's always good to kind of like uh, pour over these things. Yeah. yeah, and I think my mind has has um, developed from this conversation because we've had this more than once about how Have we talked about this. Yeah. I don't know if it was on the podcast, but we have talked. Yes, about we've it. talked about it. Yeah. Um, and so my brain has like developed different theories and like, how could this be possible? You know, kind of thing. So. Right. Yeah. But anyway, so just keep thinking about it. Doing your research. Read the word. Yeah. You know, there there is a context in which we have to read Matthew because mm-hmm. Matthew wrote down what he wrote for his audience in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Like you need to understand Matthew first. But then it's it's also okay to then go to Mark, Luke, and John and see what they said about the same event if they wrote about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the transfiguration you only have in the synoptic gospels. It's only in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the but what did the synoptic gospels say about his transfiguration? About him being transfigured before them, mm-hmm. and and then comparing what they said with what you have in Matthew. Right. So first you're looking at Matthew, you're understanding the context of Matthew, Mm -hmm. but then you can look at what the other gospel writers said and bring that into it as well. Yeah. All right. Going to the next question. This one actually requested to be anonymous. Okay. So no name on this one. Hi, Hughes. I have a few questions about church discipline. That was what we just talked about this past week Mm -hmm. out of Matthew chapter 18. So a few weeks ago, we were in Matthew 17 on the transfiguration This past week, we were looking at church discipline in Matthew 18. This woman says, I've uh, I have a few questions I've not seen asked or answered anywhere else. How should a Christian relate to one's excommunicated spouse? How should Christian parents relate to their adult kids who are professing believers, but living in unrepentant sin outside the parents household? Thank you for all that you do. Okay, so we have two questions here. Yeah, tough ones. If a spouse has been excommunicated, how does the faithful spouse continue uh, continue to relate to the one who had to be removed from the church? Mm -hmm. 
And then the other question being, how do Christian parents relate to their adult children who still say that they're Christians, but they're living in a way that would result in excommunication, Mm. perhaps if they were part of a church? And in the sense, you know, the practicality of that is that they are excommunicated. They may have excommunicated themselves, right. but if they're not in the church, then then they're out of the church. So, uh, so let's start with the first question: How should a Christian relate to one's excommunicated spouse? This, I I think, both of these questions would have a lot to do with circumstances. It's going to be a case by case basis, definitely first and foremost. And the pastor is the top person I would go to to ask advice from yeah if this is a personal thing yeah if this has happened to you then definitely we would both suggest that you talk with your pastor about it yeah that's the one that you are in most communication with regard regarding how to navigate this right and i think they they would be i mean since they were the ones that made a a decision to excommunicate them that 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 would be helpful in the the process of bringing them to repentance mm-hmm. back into church because that's the whole point of excommunication. Right. So so you think about what I said this past week regarding church discipline, <clears throat> that a person who has to be excommunicated from the church, if you get to that step that Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, let them be to you as the Gentile or the tax collector. Mm. Effectively, what the church has declared is that this person is not walking with the Lord. Mm-hmm. It's not an anthema in the sense that you're going to hell. Right. And there's nothing we can do for you. That's that's your destiny. That, right. That's not really the statement the church is making, but the church is rather saying. Or shouldn't be making. Yeah. I mean, because we can't, I can't say of a person, that's where you're headed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that final destination is in the Lord's hands. That's not in mine. Right. But when it comes to uh, the church being able to verify whether a person is truly walking with the Lord or not, Based on the evidence, based on us being in fellowship with you, based on your own profession of faith, things like that, Mm -hmm. the church is effectively saying at that point, we can no longer vouch for this person's relationship with Christ. Right. And that's why they're being put out from the body. Right. So it's not a declaration that you're going to hell, which is what the Catholic Church, they would claim that they have the authority to be able to do that. Yeah. No, you're an anthema and you're going to hell. That's not what the church is saying, but rather that this person is not living like a Christian. Mm -hmm. And because they do not demonstrate any fruit of a believer, in fact, they are in sin, that even would result in them not inheriting the kingdom of God. Like if you go to a list like Paul shares in Galatians 5 or in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Mm -hmm. And if they're living like those in those list of vices, then that person is declaring that they're they're not heaven bound mm-hmm. by their own actions, by their own life. Right. By the fruit. Yeah. You will know them by their fruit. So the, so the church is saying we can't verify their fruit or what they're producing is rotten fruit. Right. So say in a marriage, you have a spouse that's been excommunicated, but the church has decided that the other spouse is not in sin, is not in sin. Right. Yeah. So one has to be removed from the church and the other remains with that body. So how does the one that remains with the body continue to fellowship with their own spouse who's been excommunicated? I should clarify. Okay. They're in sin because all of us are, but not 
I don't think you need to say that. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hang on a second. Should I be extra careful with that? That statement in sin is reserved for somebody who is walking unrepentantly in okay, sin. Fair enough. Yeah, not not that we still have those combative tendencies with the flesh. Right. That's not what we're referring to. Right, right. But yeah, a person who's in sin, like they they love their sin, they're going after their sin, they won't repent of their sin when mm-hmm. they're confronted about it. Yeah. That's what we're talking about with a person who's in sin. Well, I think that the instructions that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 7 apply here Okay. to a spouse who is married to an unbelieving spouse. Oh, yeah, for sure. So beginning here in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 7, 10, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. So this is, this is an instruction from God. Right. That the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Hmm. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So this is now coming from Paul, mm-hmm. but it's wisdom from an apostle. Right. So it's not like it's any less the word of the Lord. This is it's just still in the Bible. That's right. It's, it's a matter of wisdom. It's not a binding of the conscience. Mm-hmm. To the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not enslaved in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Mm. So there's the counsel. You, When you think of the instruction that Jesus gave, let him be to you as the Gentile or the tax collector. Effectively, what's being said is he's an unbeliever. Right. He's either like the pagans or he's like a traitor, mm. which was what the, the tax collectors were. So you would be regarding your spouse as an unbeliever. In which case, those instructions there in 1 Corinthians 7 would be the ones that you want to follow. Mm-hmm. In 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter says to an unbelieving wife, submit to your husband. Mm-hmm. It's not just to believing husbands that you're supposed to submit to, but it is right. in, in the marriage that God has created. He's the one that created marriage. Mm-hmm. Even a believing wife must submit to her unbelieving husband. Mm-hmm. And so perhaps will win over her husband, just as Paul is saying right here. And then the instruction is given to husbands. This is first Peter three, I think verse six or seven husbands love your wives in an understanding way as the weaker vessel, knowing that she is a fellow heir with you of eternal life, mm-hmm. lest your prayers be hindered. So where there's strife in a marriage, there's a hindrance in your relationship with God. But in the case where you have an unbelieving spouse, your faithfulness needs to be unto the Lord. Understand what he has instructed you to do as a spouse, even in an unbelieving marriage, Mm -hmm. and love your spouse accordingly. And hopefully they will come around. Maybe there will be a day that they will repent of the sin that they had to be excommunicated for Mm -hmm. and be restored back to the church. That's what you would hope to have happen. Right. 
And so live in your marriage as though you can make that happen. And then if it's, you know, um, more of a physical abuse kind of situation, then seek help. Yes. And again, talk to your pastor. And get, yeah, that's you, what I was going to say. You need to be around people that that know can you. Can give you counsel. Yes. Solid counsel. If it on is the situation. If your spouse is doing something illegal, call the police. Yeah. I mean, it's not ideal, but yeah. it, you do what you got to do. The example that I gave on Wednesday of the friend of mine who was a drug abuser, mm-hmm. it was his wife that went before the elders mm. and said Here's what my husband's doing. Yeah. There was a, a man in my congregation who got caught in adultery. It was his wife that came to us. Yeah. We didn't know about it if it wasn't for her telling us. Right. So that's happened. You know, it, it happens that the the spouse has to be the one to say my husband or wife is in sin and coming right. to the church with that. Yeah. You do that because you love them. Right. Because exactly. you don't want them to continue in those vices, as I mentioned before, mm-hmm. of which it is said these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah. So wanting them to repent, then it is, it's a good thing to rebuke, to reprove a person in their sin. Mm-hmm. As Proverbs 27, six says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Mm. Yeah. Or in one translation, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They will flatter you all the while. But it is the... And encourage you in sin. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's the world. Yeah. That's what the world is doing, encouraging yes. people in sin. So that was the question with regards to the spouse. The other one was how should Christian parents relate to their adult kids who are professing believers but living in unrepentant sin? This is certainly a different scenario because you're probably... Your adult children are probably not living with you. Right. Whereas with... An unrepentant or unbelieving spouse, you do have to live together. Mm-hmm. But with your children, it's a different circumstance. But you still, like with anybody, you still love them, would want them to repent, would want them to to turn back to Christ and come into fellowship with the church. Mm-hmm. The church is a it's a safety to us. The church protects okay. us from false doctrine, from the ways of the world, from the temptations of our own flesh. We need that accountability. Yes. The church needs you and you need the church. Yes. That'd be a whole body. That's right. And that's Ephesians chapter four, so that we may grow up as men and women into the head who is Christ Mm -hmm. and not be tossed to and fro by every shifting wind of doctrine. Yes. By human cunningness and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Mm. But it is together with the body holding fast to Christ that we are growing in holiness and sanctification and longing for that day when we will be with the Lord forever in glory. Mm-hmm. If, if you're too in the world, you're not thinking about that day. Yeah. You're thinking about worldly things. Yeah. But when you are with Christ and his body, then you're thinking about heavenly things. Doesn't it say in the Bible that you shouldn't um, share meals with the unsaved or something like yeah, that? Yes. So, so do not even eat with such a one. Right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, comes up in 2 Thessalonians 3. So how does that apply in your family, though? You can't because I can't imagine that. Yeah, you can't do that with a spouse that you're married to. Right. But with your children, I think there does need to be some ground rules. If you guys are going to live like this, you can't eat at this table. Hmm. And you're doing that out of love. Right. I was friends with uh, Ryan Dobson Mm -hmm. about 20 years ago. We used to we, we did a couple of tours together. So me and my band would open with music. 
and then he would do the speaking. Mm-hmm. He had a great book that was entitled Be Intolerant Because Some Things Are Just Stupid. <laughs> that was his first book. Oh, dear. And so when he came yeah, out, when he came out like with that book, we, we toured together. So Ryan, of course, if you don't recognize the name Dobson, he's the son of Dr. James Dobson. Mm-hmm. And he does family talk now with Dobson. Uh, Dobson had left focus on the family and started family talk with Dr. James Dobson. Okay. And Ryan was his co-host on that show. Oh, cool. So anyway, yeah, back when I had a band, it wasn't quite 20 years ago. It was 16. Ish. Yeah, 16, 17 years ago. But anyway, when we, uh, I I remember in uh, one of the stories that he shared how his parents kicked him out of the house. And it was because he had gone off to college and lived like a heathen. Hmm. and had uh, squandered his parents' money, his grades had dropped, and his parents said, we're cutting you off because this was not the arrangement. This was not the agreement. Mm -hmm. And you're on your own. And once you can get this figured out, once you can learn some responsibility and you can live in a godly way, then we'll come alongside you again and help you. But until then, you've got to do this by yourself. And, uh, And Ryan said... You know, knowing now, looking back on it, was one of the hardest decisions my parents had to make. Mm. I might have thought it was incredibly unfair at the time and was mad at my parents. But every night they're on their knees and in tears praying that their son Mm. would repent and come back to the Lord. Yeah. And he said it was the best thing they could have done for me Hmm. because I realized how hard life was (laughs) (laughs) when I had to do it on my own. Yeah. And uh, did lead him to repentance and became a very godly young man. Oh, that's interesting. Because, I mean, you know, now's the time for families to get together and everything. And, and usually around the holidays. Yeah. yeah. And and usually um, families that are not on the same page, if you will, um, they they tend to. It tends to blow up, you know. Of course. Family drama. <laughs> yeah, you know. That's how that goes. <laughs> So my family is so spread out across the country and so is yours. Yeah, it I is. mean, we just we very rarely get together anymore, but it would certainly be that kind of atmosphere, that kind yeah. of climate. I've got some siblings For and yours. some yeah. really strange places right now. Yeah. So I get how that goes. And and my parents have been put in this place of having to tell one of my brothers or sisters, not me because I'm an angel. But <laughs> Gabriel. That's right. Uh-uh. But having <laughs> having to tell one of my brothers or sisters we're not going to support your lifestyle. Yeah. So we're cutting you off and you have to repent. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that's not been the direction that my siblings have gone. So yeah, still praying for them as well. But I certainly, yeah. those, those of you who've been in this situation, I can relate. Yeah. I know how it is. Uh, next question comes from Ray and he says, hi, Pastor Gabe and Becky. My question has to do with Jude one five. Some translations use Lord while others use Jesus. Okay, I don't think he quotes Jude here, so let me turn to that. Jude chapter 1, it's only one chapter anyway. And let me just begin reading. We'll go down through verse 5. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. 
ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, this is verse five, though you know all things that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And then Jude goes from there into talking about angels and Sodom and Gomorrah going after strange flesh in verse seven and so on and so forth. So verse five is where we have the statement. I want to remind you that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, that's the verse. Okay, that's what we have in view here. And Ray says some translations use Lord while others use Jesus. Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. If Jesus is the proper translation, this would have to be one of the clearest biblical verses pointing to the divinity of Christ, since the Old Testament points to Yahweh as being the one who performed the actions in these verses. What is the proper translation? Is it Lord or Jesus? I'm a longtime listener and really appreciate your ministry. I pray that the Lord continues to prosper your ministry and uses it to bring many into the kingdom. May you and your family have a blessed Christmas and may the new year bring much more growth in Christ for you, Becky, and your growing tribe. Aww. Peace, Ray. I, I don't know that Becky's wanting the tribe to grow anymore, <laughs> at least right now. They're, they're getting taller than me, though. <laughs> we're, we're literally growing now. Yes. <laughs> Haven't added to our numbers in a couple of years, but we are, uh, we're certainly growing up. Yes. I'm growing out. But, you know, it's, <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, this is, like you said, this is one of the clearest examples that we have in Scripture of, of Jesus being the one who had freed the Israelites from Egypt. Specifically, it's the Son of God. Jude uses the name Jesus here. Is that the proper translation or should it rather be Lord? Well, Jameson Fawcett Brown's commentary was written in the 19th century, so this is over 100 years old. And in their commentary, they say the oldest manuscripts and versions read Jesus. So Christ is said to have accompanied the Israelites in the wilderness. So perfectly is Jesus one with the God of the Israelite theocracy. Hmm. That's what's said there in the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary. John Gill was a preacher in the 18th century. He was a predecessor to Charles Spurgeon. Okay. And he said that the earliest manuscripts on this passage, Jude verse 5, say Jesus. Hmm. So you can go back through commentaries that are hundreds of years old. And even those commentarians, Matthew, Henry, and others, will say that the earliest manuscripts say Jesus. So why are there some manuscripts that say Lord? It could be, I've talked about this before with those Byzantine monks that are just kind of overzealous scribes. Oh, yeah. uh -huh. and they'll try to insert their own interpretations in there rather than jotting notes they bring the note over into the text and they translate the text that way. Mm -hmm. So you may have had one monk in there somewhere around the fifth or sixth centuries, probably later than that, who had looked at that and thought, well, it couldn't have been Jesus because he hadn't been born yet. Mm. So it must be Lord. And the monk probably thought what he was reading was a mistranslation. So he wrote Lord in the margin, which eventually got brought over into the text. Mm -hmm. And that's why you ended up with that variation. But the earliest manuscripts do say Jesus. Hmm. It is Jesus who rescued them out of Egypt. And that's not the only place. Jude is not the only one that does that. Paul does that. 
So you think in 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Hmm. So Paul says Christ was with them in the wilderness. Jude is saying it's Christ who's the one that delivered them from Egypt. But both claims are the same. It was Jesus who was with the Israelites the entire time from their deliverance through the wilderness and giving them the promised land. Mm -hmm. And so when Jesus comes at his advent, which is what we celebrate this time of year, his first advent, he is coming to that people. He has so given himself for for over a thousand years that he even comes to them and dies for them, gives his life for them. For when we remember what we read in John chapter one, beginning in verse 11, he came to what was his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Hmm. And so we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ. I was looking up um, what the name Jesus meant, because I keep forgetting. And uh, the Lord of salvation. Yes. So maybe that's why they've put in Lord as well is thinking that it can't well, be true. Jesus. Well, true. That's true. It, it could be the Lord of, you know. Because in Hebrew, his name was Yeshua. Right. And Yeshua, the yesh at the beginning is is Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So Yahweh saves. So that could be. Yeah. That, that, that's a know. possibility. Like they were just trying to think it out on their own. Right. Kind of thing rather than. Oh, somebody got this wrong. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have various things like that. Maybe. But, but the fact that we're able to trace the manuscripts and identify errors like that. Yeah. That are over a thousand years old. That's huge. That actually testifies to the authenticity of the Bible that we read today, that it is true. Mm-hmm. That this is. Accurate. This is accurate. Right. Yeah. This is what was originally written. Right. And whereas you have the Book of Mormon. Where Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon that we have today, we, I'm saying collective we, but yeah, <laughs> the, the Book of Mormon that we have today is, uh, is actually Joseph Smith's second draft. Oh, right. He wrote yeah. a manuscript beforehand that got destroyed and, and we don't know what it said. Mm-hmm. Nobody will ever know what it said. Right. It was probably completely different than the, <laughs> than it the book, been. book of Mormon that he came up with uh, with later. But there's there's no manuscripts to compare it with. Right. And same with the Quran. It's the same way. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's no early manuscripts to compare it with, even though, you know, there's been changes to these things over the centuries as well. So anyway, uh, that, that's kind of a different discussion, but it still ties in here to yeah, that's a correct translation mm-hmm. in Jude one five that it is Jesus, yeah, who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Good question, though, Ray. Very good. Okay, last question here. This is the one that I said was really long, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see how long this takes us here. When we understand you're awesome, <laughs> to the pastor of Providence Reformed Baptist Church in Casa Grande, no D. <laughs> Arizona and his wife, grace and peace to you from the meek little Greenwood, Indiana. 
Oh, this is beginning like a letter from Paul yes. already. You know, that's that's great. I love the introduction here. Gabe and Becky, I hope this modern day letter finds you well. The purpose of this message is twofold encouragement and advice solicitation. Thanks be to God for our brother, Justin Peters, who by means of YouTube gave a list of recommended channels on a random video a few months ago. It was then that I learned of these what videos and thus this what podcast. Oh, cool. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, thank you. I have been sharing and consuming them since that time. I bet the first week I watched over 50 videos from your channel because they are so short and packed with solid biblical theology. Well, I think to watch all of them takes you less than four hours. Yeah, but it's a lot of information. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I've been wanting to uh, go back to the manuscripts on the uh, uh, on the what website uh-huh. so you can read the transcripts from each video on the website. And I've been wanting to add in like because there's verses sometimes that will be in the slide that I don't that actually yeah. read. Uh huh. And so adding the verses in there. So you got all the cross references. I think you should. In the manuscripts. Yeah. It's about 400 videos, but I'll, I'll go back and uh, see if I can't do that. Get whenever I eventually. Whenever I have time. <laughs> so he says, my wife, uh, a home hospice nurse, Aww. bless her heart, also consumes them during her drive in between patient visits. Hmm. You both have been a blessing to our family, and we hope this comes as an encouragement to keep on doing what you're doing. I travel for work about 40% of the time, so I consume the podcast during workouts when I'm alone in the hotel gym. It makes running on a treadmill or doing arm curls somewhat tolerable. (laughs) I feel you there. Uh, Not my favorite pastime. (laughs) Yeah, I got Becky a bike she won't ride. I do, right? You've asked for a treadmill, too, and I've said, no, you got to ride that bike first. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather have a treadmill. I, I know you ride. I'm not at home whenever you're nope. You're riding. Yeah. But I know that if my laundry's still on the bike, you haven't been riding. Your laundry has not been on the bike. And it hasn't been. <laughs> as long as we've been in Arizona, I can say my laundry has never been on the bike. There's been a blanket one time, and that's been it. <laughs> I just love the, the joke about you buy exercise equipment to hang your laundry yep. on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so a wardrobe. Yeah, that's right. So an out an outside wardrobe. A quick praise to share is our daughter of 12 got baptized at our church on Sunday. Aww. Praise be to God. That's wonderful news. Yes, congratulations. Also, I was curious how you would respond to this situation, asking you as a completely unbiased resource. There's a lot of context and baggage here, so I'll try to sum it up in bullet points. Number one, my sister and her husband planted a church about five years ago. Number two, they split the preaching nearly 50-50. Number three, they do at the movies a lot. (laughs) That sound you heard was Becky rolling her eyes. That was was what that was. I saw that, uh, that Greg Rochelle, who is the pastor of Life Church in Oklahoma City, and they they have numerous campuses. I think it's the largest church in the country, if you include all their campuses. Mm. But he's doing an at the movies for the Christmas season. Mm. So they're playing clips of Christmas movies and then exegeting the Christmas movie. Of course. Not the scriptures, but looking at movies. Yeah. You know, this is a it's a decent exercise because you think of like when Paul had said uh, one of your own poets has said mm-hmm. in Acts chapter 17, in Titus chapter one, he quotes Epimenides. So the poets have said this 
And their statement is true, he says of Epimenides' statement. So you can find truths that are stated by pagans Mm -hmm. in movies, music, other kinds of art. But why would you do that as a sermon? Yeah, you don't do that as a sermon. That's that's a a genuine exercise. And in, in, in the context of Acts chapter 17, Paul's doing it in evangelism. Yeah. In the context of Titus 1, he's doing it in instructions he's giving to his pastor on how to evangelize the people that are in that area. Mm-hmm. So there, it's an, an evangelism application. This is how you get to know the hearts of the people that you are among. Mm-hmm. Because you can hear the truths that they say, and you know this statement is true even though they don't believe the Bible or they don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. Yet they will believe truths that God has established. And so you use those truths to show them, see, you actually know this. Right. But you've just not given praise to the one who made it possible. Mm -hmm. That is God, the one who gave us all things. So it it is a good exercise. Yeah, of course. To even be reading. Yeah, but not as a sermon. You don't do it as a sermon. You preach God's word in your sermons. Yeah. Or you can use a movie quote as an example. I've done that. I've quoted a movie in a sermon before. Yeah. But it's not the focus of the sermon. Yeah. <laughs> the the movie shouldn't be preaching. The word of God should be preaching. Right. So anyway, uh, this brother goes on, John. He says, my wife and I hold the stance as spelled out in scripture that women cannot be pastors. That was number four. Fifth, we also hold that the Bible is more than enough and we don't need Hollywood infiltrating Sunday morning. Mm. And finally, my parents have attended since launch. We can agree to disagree on the above bullet points and still have birthday parties and family Christmas time. While the blunt conversation hasn't happened in so many words, they know where we stand. However, recently I discovered something that I feel I cannot keep quiet about. My brother-in-law said something so outlandish. I sometimes will suffer through part of their YouTube broadcasts of their service when I work from home during lunch just to see how they are leading their flock that I had to look it up. I found that it was a direct quote from Andy Stanley and then the rabbit hole opened up. It, It didn't take long to figure out that they are purchasing their sermon content. I pray they at least pay for it. And then they are regurgitating it nearly word for word to their congregation. Uh. They will amend personal stories that Andy tells, but they won't take out some of the jokes. It's disgusting to me. If I did the Google Photos thing right, you can find a quick side-by-side I made today to get the gist. On the left side is Andy in 2018, and on the on the other side is my brother-in-law this past Sunday. So mm-hmm. they're saying things like identical wow. to one another. And this was what we did exposing Ed Litton a couple of years ago and yep. showing here's what J.D. Greer taught and here's what Ed Litton taught. And we put those things side by side and they were saying exactly the same thing. Yeah. So then John goes on. Do you have any advice on how you bring something like that to a family member? I've confronted mom and dad about it. And their stance is that it's not plagiarism since they purchased the content. Many blessings from our family to yours, Gabe and Becky. I would agree that on a on from a certain viewpoint, it's not plagiarism because they are not copying somebody else's stuff. They're purchasing that content. They're paying for it. And then that's what it is that they're saying. So if you're looking at it from that vantage point, it's not plagiarism. I have a hard time with that. Why is that? Because you're not giving them credit. Okay, then that's the other part. 
So from that vantage point, it's not plagiarism. They're buying it. And that's the reason it's being sold Mm -hmm. is for you to use this sermon content and you can preach it before your church. But it is plagiarism. If it's being sold for that reason. Yes. That's the that that is the reason. Oh. That's the reason it's being sold for. So you could not to use as a reference. Right. They don't even to... want you to give reference to. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, that's that's how these companies work. Like Docent, for example. Docent is not expecting you to get up before your church and say, "Hey, I'm preaching a sermon today that I bought from Docent." Hmm. But rather the way that they would increase their uh, the the people that buy from them would be word of mouth. So you're telling your pastor friends, "Go purchase from Docent." Ah your sermon material and interesting and yeah, and which is very, very likely what JD Greer and Ed Litton were doing. Mm. It wasn't that Litton was ripping off JD Greer. It's that they were both getting their sermon material from docent, mm-hmm. but Greer didn't want to say that he was plagiarizing. Well, of course not by taking from docent. Right. So, you know, yeah, it's wrong that, uh, that Litton is doing this, but I'm not, I'm not going to incriminate myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't be looking at me. He's the one that was preaching. So it is plagiarism in the sense that you're taking it and you're making it look like it's yours. Mm-hmm. You came up yeah. with this. This is yours. We were taught that in college. Right. <laughs> A lot. And that's just dishonest. <laughs> yeah. Now, some will argue, well, like, what about the churches that have a liturgy? Like, you'll have Lutheran churches that are all preaching the same thing on Sunday. Well, that's different. Everybody knows they're doing that. It's kind of like a curriculum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That all the churches are following the same thing. And they do that for the purpose of if you, for one, to control the liturgy. Right. So you know that what's coming out of the pulpit is not just the whimsy of the pastor. Right. There's somebody over that that's saying this is what is OK. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. But there's also like no matter where you go, if you enter into one of those churches, you're still going to get the same. Info. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's like I, I was in this church last week who preached this message. Now I'm coming this week and I'm going to hear the continuation of right. this message in another church. Right. So that's, that's why how our school curriculum works. <clears throat> yeah. That you can you can go to another homeschool group mm-hmm. that's using the same curriculum and you're still caught up on the same yeah. same lessons and everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That it, We just moved. Yeah, it was it was helpful. So we're able to go from one homeschool group in that curriculum to another homeschool group in the same curriculum. Mm-hmm. And our kids are still. They're at least on the same page. Yeah, on the same page with with everything they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's that's what's going on. It is unethical. It is. Which is. Uh, that you're using somebody else's material and making it look like your own. Oh, yeah. Especially with jokes. Um, Like, I don't know. There's jokes that you tell that I can't deliver. Well, the the (laughs) first... Like, just go... Yeah, The personal experience (laughs) stories are really what exposes this as a fraud. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because, uh, like, the one example that we showed with with the whole Ed Litton thing, J.D. Greer told this story about something he experienced in Driver's Ed... Mm. And then Ed Litton's sharing the exact same story. Now, yeah. wait a second. How yeah. did y'all experience this in Driver's Ed? Now, you you could also tell that there was one story uh, of something that J.D. Greer experienced when he went to Nepal. I think it was. Uh-huh. And then Litton shared the same story, but he shared it and attributed it to somebody else. It happened to someone else, not J.D. Greer. I think it was Paul David Tripp or something like that. Uh-huh. So the possibility then is that in the material that was being uh, sold by Docent, Mm -hmm. that they were citing this as, here's something that Paul David Tripp shared. J.D. Greer was able to say, I've made that trip, and I, no no pun intended, 
<laughs> I've made that trip and I experienced the same thing. So uh-huh. he was able to make it a personal experience story. Whereas Lytton was still giving credit to Trip, uh-huh. who was in the material that Docent was selling. So that's why you had what sounded like the same story, but it was attributed to different people. Mm. But then when you had the driver's ed thing, that was like, okay, so J.D. Greer had this experience in driver's ed and you had this experience in driver's ed? Who else had this experience in driver's ed? <laughs> or neither one of you had this experience in driver's ed. And you're just taking somebody else's story and making it your own. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, it's a lie. You're lying. But you, uh, you got to understand this in the eyes of the world, because this stuff is getting exposed mm-hmm. and you can't keep it a secret. Right. In the eyes of the world, you look like a total fraud. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you look like a fraud to me, too. But but that I mean, that's that's the you, you will hear constantly from these guys. The world is watching. Yeah. You apparently don't have any concern about that when you're ripping off other people's sermon material. Because you can't just simply open up the word and preach the word. You've got to have some worldly gimmick to try to win people in. And as is often said, what you win them with is what you win them to. Yeah. If and if you give that up, then you've lost your, your crowd. That's right. You stop doing the at the movie stuff and the people won't come back because that's what they're coming for. Yeah. Yeah. We get to talk about movies in church. Mm-hmm. That's like what almost all of YouTube is built around. Yeah. Like a good right. 60 or 70% of YouTube is just ranting about movies and TV shows. Yeah. It's incredible. I, I'll go down those rabbit holes when I get on YouTube and I'm like, there's so many videos and channels talking about these movies. That's it's, crazy. It's always like, that's all it's here for. Uh, but anyway, that's the, uh, it's just like a, it's like a running commentary on pop culture. <laughs> that's YouTube. But yeah, you're right. I mean, and of course, John, as you're asking for advice here, like how do you engage something? Like that? Do you have any advice on how you bring something like that to a family member? I mean, really, the the big problem here, of course, purchasing material from somebody else and just regurgitating those ideas, that has some problems to it. Yes, it's plagiarism, but you're probably entering in a semantic argument over that. Right. The bigger issue is that they're just not preaching God's word. Mm-hmm. God's word is not the focus, the showcase in the sermon. Right. If you'll pardon the crudeness of the word. But it's the focus is on the movie because you're enticing people to come. Listen, we're going to talk about a movie. Mm hmm. Yeah. And you get to check your church box. Right. <laughs> and and I got to talk about movies at church today. Yeah. So it's not God's word that's leading the people. It's cultural commentary. Mm hmm. That's leading the people. That's really the biggest issue. And then, of course, you know, the matter that you brought up with uh, the fact that your sister-in-law is also carrying 50% of the preaching responsibility. I mean, that right there is a is a litmus test that they don't really know and follow God's word. Mm-hmm. It is explicitly said in God's word. And I'm preaching on this this Sunday because that's where we are in our series in First Timothy. I'm in First yep. Timothy chapter 2. It's explicitly said that women are not to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, they are to remain quiet. Mm-hmm. But here, this man is abdicating his responsibility and giving his pulpit over to his wife. This is the very thing that God had 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 rebuked Adam for in the garden. Yeah. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because you listen to her. That's really the sin that... God highlights when he gives the curse to Adam. You ate the fruit that I told you not to eat from. 
but you listen to the voice of your wife. You let her lead you mm-hmm. instead of you being the one that was supposed to be leading your household in faithfulness unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that's a big issue. That That's really the bigger issue that's going on here in this matter is negligence of God's word. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, you can, you can bring this up as far as like, what is the the main point of church? You know, like I'm, I'm trying to help like lead into a conversation. Yeah. Like, so what are you, what's a good question that would help you lead into this discussion? Yeah. What, what would you suggest as far as that goes? Like, like how to how to initiate like, it? Okay, do they do this during What in the world their- were you doing on Sunday? That's how I would start. <laughs> so, but you would do this, would you call it to a meeting? Like a special meeting apart from everything else or would you invite them over for dinner and set them down and have a discussion about it? Oh, for me personally, it would be organic. Yeah. So we we were planning on getting together anyway, so this is the this is the topic, the topic. I'm going to bring up. <laughs> yeah. They say, uh, don't bring up politics and religion at family gatherings. Yeah. There's that picture Dave's of... Dave's always awkward. <laughs> yeah. Always. He's always got to make it awkward. I'm going to make it the most awkward for everybody. There's a there's a meme that has uh, R.C. Sproul, and he's he's teaching passionately to his class. You know, he's got his arms out like this. Uh-huh. And the caption at the top is, don't bring up religion or, uh, or politics during dinner. Uh-huh. And then it says... Me after the uh, after the appetizer, and yeah. it's you know like I got my arms out of here. And Let's get into this. That's right. Let's do this. But that's me. I mean, you have to assess the situation yourself. You know your parents and your siblings, and how yeah. you can have that kind of conversation. Should he have it with the the siblings first, or everybody? I would talk to my mom and dad first, personally. Oh yeah, yeah. And that you know that would just be a phone call. Yeah, because I've done that before, calling my dad and. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I have a brother that's in a heretical church. Yeah. And so, yeah, my dad and I have ranted about that. <laughs> even even my dad's thoughts are, why is he in that church? Yeah. So. I was yeah. just curious. But, that, that also but goes back into my, into the uh, disobedience of my siblings. It's all tied into yes, that. Yes, it I is. Earlier. But I mean, in this case, the, the parents think that what the siblings are doing is fine. Right. That, and that's why you have to have. A discussion about it. Of course, as parents, you, you want to be, be pr- supportive. Exactly. You want to be proud of your kids and what they're doing and, and whatever else. Yeah. But you can't encourage them in sin. Right. And this is sin. That's true. Yeah. I was just curious. Yeah. So I hope uh, somewhere in that, in my own rants, John, that you were able to. <laughs> Glean from your. Uh, get something useful experience. out of that. That's right. <laughs> All right, so next week, we're going to try to do something a little bit more Christmas-themed, since it is the Friday right before Christmas. Yeah. And if you would like to send questions to our program, anything Christmas-related, send them to whenweunderstandthetext at gmail.com. The week after that, we're doing our year-end review, and then the week after that, going down, counting down all of the biggest web videos of the year. Woo-hoo. So those are our next three programs, but we'd still love to hear from you, and we'll throw some questions in there, too. Yes, please. All right. Well, let's finish with prayer. Yes, let's. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time that we have together, that we read your word and discuss these things. Always good to have discussion. I love good, deep theological discussions. Can't ever get too old to want to talk about our God and the mysterious ways in which you work. As it said in the book of Proverbs, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search it out. 
And so a, a wonderful exercise for us to come over the word of God and come to an understanding of who you are and what you are doing in our sanctification, in our world today, so that we may exalt you and glorify you as sovereign and king over all. And may we come to an understanding of how we discuss these things with our friends and family and doing so with charity. For as the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. And may we have that kind of humility with one another, as well as the humility we are to have before our God. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. What? That was the dog. Was that the dog? That was the dog. Get out of here, dog. I I told the kids, I said, make sure to give him extra lovings and let him out if he needs it. Because he's going to want to come in here and play with mom. (laughs) Which I don't see a problem with him being in here unless he starts going. Mm, Yeah, he does that and shakes his head. (laughs) So you hear his little jangly collar. Uh, He's quieter than any of the other dogs we've ever had. This is very true. But yes. he still has annoying habits. Yeah. I know. Which he does just to get your attention. Like, I looked this up. Like, <laughs> Why do dogs do this? They're trying to get your attention. Well, of course. <laughs> it's like the passive aggressiveness, you know? It is. It's very passive aggressive. <laughs> passive aggressive dogs. Uh, there was that uh, that dog we were taking care of. The big lab. For that one family, they were moving, and so they had us take care of him while they were in the in the moving process. I can't remember their name, but we had that big lab at our house mm-hmm. on Webster. Yeah, I was trying to remember the names too. But yeah, he yeah. would do that. Like he'd just poke his head in our bedroom and go, <laughs> "Oh, come on!" I totally know why you're doing that. Not even my dog, and I know what you're doing. Come love me. Uh, uh, it's better than barking, though. I can handle yeah, the barking better is. than barking. Although I'll appreciate that at least when Blackie barks, he'll just go before he gets to the loud yeah. barking. Yeah, so you get a it's, warning. It's a warm up. He's about to go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. He's as, funny. As opposed to Tank or Sparky, who oh, would just goodness. explode. Right off the bat. Yep. Off the cuff. No one had a louder bark than Sparky. Oh, I don't think I don't think I've no ever heard joke. I don't think I've ever heard a dog with a louder bark than Sparky. He was he was something else. He uh, was a he was a good dog. He just had He was a dumb dog. He he really he was a good dog. Good. He was just he was very dumb. <laughs> he didn't ever run away. He got out of the fence and he just walked the fence. Yeah, like, right. How do like, I get back in? <laughs> he got he got out and decided, <laughs> I don't like this at all. <laughs> How do I get back in there? Uh, let me home. <laughs> it was good. 